In the world of manufacturing, change is the only constant. How are small and medium-sized manufacturers, SMMs, to keep up with new technologies, regulations, and other important shifts, let alone leverage them to become leaders in their industries? Shifting Gears, a podcast from CMTC, highlights leaders from the modern world of manufacturing, from SMMs to consultants to industry experts. Each quarter, we go deep into topics pertinent to both operating a manufacturing firm and the industry as a whole. Join us to hear about the manufacturing sector's latest trends, groundbreaking technologies, and expert insights to help SMMs in California set themselves apart in this exciting modern world of innovation and change. I'm Greg Profesich, Director of Advanced Manufacturing Technologies at CMTC, and I'd like to welcome you. In this episode, I'm joined by two CMTC Cyber Physical Security Services consultants, Ernie Edmonds and Buzz Thomas. Ernie and Buzz define NIST SP800171 and explain what it entails, its requirements, which companies need to follow its guidelines, and how an SMM can implement it. Welcome, Buzz. I appreciate you being here with us today. Hi, Greg. Thanks for having me. Ernie, welcome to you as well. It's great to have you here. Thanks, Greg. Appreciate it. It's great to speak with both of you again. I'm looking forward to our conversation. We're here to talk about cybersecurity, but in particular, the NIST SP800171 cybersecurity standards and how they impact small and mid-sized manufacturers. By the end of the conversation, our goal is to have a good understanding of what NIST SP800171 is, as well as some practical actions that small and mid-sized manufacturers can take to help protect their businesses. So let's jump right in. For context, what is NIST SP800171? Ernie, why don't you kick us off? The 800-171, it's a list of standards provided by NIST. It's on its second revision at this point, so it's SP-800-171 revision 2. There are 110 requirements within the 171. They cover anything from access control to physical and logical security, personnel security, and those are broken down into families. So depending on... Uh, what the topics are. There could be from, say, 2 to 22 uh, requirements in each of the the families. They do a good job at um, getting a start into security. Understand that this is a um, compliance, usually, effort and not a security effort. There is an intersection at some point, but normally when people start with the 171, it's exactly that. It's a start. They can determine what their security posture is from these baseline requirements and uh, determine where they need to go from there. So 110 requirements seems like a lot broken into families. How manageable or unmanageable is it for a small company? So for a small to medium enterprise, the 171 represents a basic understanding and basic assessment of what their security posture is. It can be manageable if there is a certain amount of in-house expertise that understands what they're dealing with. Some small to mediums that I go to, they they don't even understand the words. So we start with what the words mean and then we go to the concepts and ultimately we, you know, we get to where we're going. But others I go to, they, you know, they have uh, engineers on staff. They're a fairly technically adept group and they understand completely. And often they have a lot of this stuff already done by the time we start an engagement. So it just depends on the, um, the competency and the people that are there. But these are not hard things. These are basic security hygiene things. 
So it's not something where they're going to have to stand up, you know, something very complex. No, there can be complexities to it, but it's not that way often. And there's only uh, probably three things that are pretty heavy lifts within the 171. So basic security hygiene things. Example or two? So password management. We all know, you know, through experience that eight characters minimum, alphanumeric complexity, things like that. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the things it covers. But there's other things like training and there's incident response and reporting. And there's a good basic security posture that comes out of this. Okay. So it sounds like it's more of a checklist of 110 things I could look at to see where I'm at as a starting point. Is it kind of like a compliance checklist almost? Yeah, it's a laundry list and you start at one and you end at 110. And for each one, there is either successful implementation or not. And, you know, there's alternative implementations for some that, you know, sometimes you you choose to do something other than what most people would. But in the end, it still provides the security posture that's needed. Got it. Buzz, anything to add to this? Well, that was a good description, I think. There's 14 control families in that and they were kind of aimed at non-federal computer systems. The 171 is for non-federal computer systems, like contractors. And if it's federal systems, there's a different standard, which is 853. It's kind of like it started out being a way to allow contractors to store, process, transmit controlled unclassified information that they were working on on behalf of the federal government. And then it's kind of evolved to where even private companies are starting to use that for their security reference, even when they're not using controlled unclassified information. Okay, so I'm thinking now I'm a hypothetically small machine shop owner, right? I know machine shop, I know machining, I know engineering, I know metals, et cetera. I'm not necessarily an expert in IT and cybersecurity. If I looked at the standard, I could look and check off, okay, of the 110, I have maybe 40 things in place already. We do, we use strong passwords, et cetera, et cetera. We have certain things in place. And then it would give me a list of things that maybe are risk points that I might want to look at more deeply, right? I'm a federal contractor, though, and so I probably should be paying attention to this. Is that kind of the way it's coming from? or is it evolving differently than that? I think the mindset behind it is that nobody historically really knew all the things to do to have a good security defensive posture. And so the government, NIST, they came up with this as a minimum baseline to say, if you have nothing else, this is what you have to have at a minimum in order to use, store, process, transmit the COI, controlled and classified information. We need to keep in mind that while it is a good standard, it does represent a minimum baseline. It's not meant to be the best of breed and the most defensive posture you can take. But it's a good way for me to figure out if I own that machine shop, hypothetically, we're talking about what my current state is really, right? I audit against it and figure out my current state. And if I get up to at least it, now I'm hitting the minimum standards and I can think about incrementally improving over that. That's right. So what are the requirements of NIST SP 800-171? So there are 14 families of controls, meaning different categories of control, like access control. There's physical controls, and what they're designed to do is to teach you how to protect your information and your systems. If your systems are using or storing or processing CUI data, government-type data, you have to have a password. Passwords have to have minimum complexity levels met. It'll have controls on passwords, on encryption, on storage, on transporting data between sites, just about anything that your machine shop would run into in terms of how to handle the CUI data is outlined in the 171. 
So we keep talking about CUI data. What falls within the scope of controlled, unclassified information? This is the million dollar question. Even when we go through training with clients on what CUI is, it seems like the next day it's all been deleted because it's unfamiliar to think about data this way. So let's start with the government definition. The government says, and even let's be very specific and, and talk about DOD, Defense Department. Defense Department says, first of all, if it's our data, meaning we made it, own it, or you made it on our behalf, and there's this and, and we determine that there should be controls on how it's disseminated, then that's CUI, that's controlled and classified information. And then if you are in a contract relationship with their prime and their prime defines something as CUI, whether you know it to be true or not, that also has to be treated like CUI. So when you say treated like CUI, what does that mean? That means that any system that processes, stores, or transmitted has to meet the security control requirements in the 800-171. That's the relationship. Like, is it CUI or not? And if it is, then it has to be on systems that meet the 171. And if it doesn't meet the 171, then it can't store, transmit, or process CUI. So in looking into cybersecurity for manufacturing, one comes across a couple of terms repeatedly. Among them, DFARS, Defense Federal Acquisition Regulation Supplement, and CMMC, Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification. What are they and how do they relate to NIST SP-800-171? So the DFARS that we're really talking about with the CUI is the 252.204-7012. In that, it says what is required in order to, as Buzz mentioned earlier, to store, process, or transmit CUI. And it specifically states that the 171 is the compelling mandate for right now. Going forward, that will probably change. This is speculative, but we suspect that it'll change to reference the CMMC at level 2.0. So when we're talking about CMMC, Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification, we're talking about version two at this point, which came out last December. And in order to possess, store, or transmit CUI, you have to be at a level two. They're in different orders from the 171. The 171 has the 14 families. They're broken down into one through X, and it's pretty straightforward. Since there's multiple levels with the CMMC, in this case, level one, and then level two, both of those are cumulative. So if one possesses CUI, needs to protect CUI, then you'll not only have level two, but you combine that with level one to get level two. So you still end up with the same 110 requirements. It's just they're in a different order. So the security posture will be the same outcome. There is provision for what's called a plan of actions and milestones, which you know, if you don't have it completely finished at the beginning, say you find something that's not been successfully implemented, then that's the, the path that you, you mark it down as not implemented. And you come up with a strategy to how to successfully implement that particular line item. Again, it's just like a laundry list. So the level two is, again, it's exactly the same controls as the 171, but that will be the new standard going forward. And uh, there can be additional requirements like a third-party assessment for those who are on what, what's considered a preferred contract. Okay, so there's a lot in there. I want to unpack that just a little bit. 
So what I think I heard you say is that for CMMC, the Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification, basically what they've done is kind of disassembled and repackaged in a way the 800 110 requirements and 14 families, and they broke it into level one and two. And depending on what kind of information I'm doing and what kind of a contract I have, I may need to have level one or level two compliance. And if I have level one and level two compliance, it's the same thing as following all 110 controls across the 14 families. Is that correct? That's exactly right. And some contracts will only need level one. So if it's something that does not have CUI, but is still a federal contract, then it's possible to be a level one only. With that, you have fewer controls. Of course, it's much easier to implement because of the fewer controls, but you don't have the security posture necessary to, again, possess store transmit CUI. Okay. That makes sense. And then DFARS, Defense Federal Acquisition Regulation Supplement. Currently, 800-171 is mandated, and I miss the alphabet soup and numbers that you threw out there, Ernie. They rolled off your tongue. They kind of scared me how easily you said those things. <laughs> sure. The DFARS 252.204-7012 is what we're talking about. Say that three times fast, yeah, exactly. right? Exactly. <laughs> So currently, to comply with that part of the DFARS regulations, NIST SP 800-171 is currently mandated as the standard to use. That's correct. So if I'm doing defense federal acquisitions, if, if I'm producing anything within the defense supply chain, chances are 800-171 applies to me, and it's something I need to know about and figure out how I can be in adherence to. So, Buzz, anything to add to any of that conversation? I would maybe say that the regulation that says you have to comply is the DFARS. Right, so DFARS says what standards or guidance do you have to follow, and they're pointing to the 171. So many people ask, you know, do I have to comply with the 171? And we often correct them and say, no, you have to comply with DFARS. Uh, just as in federal situations, it's the FISMA laws, the Federal Information Security Management Act that point to NIST 853 and say you have to comply with that. If it didn't have the law, then it would just be another guideline or standard. So 800-171 by itself is a set of cybersecurity control requirements that are considered minimum best practice for CUI data. Okay, that makes sense. Thank you for that clarification and addition. So the NIST SP-800-171 is referenced as a security control baseline to follow by DFARS, safeguarding covered defense information and cyber incident reporting. How can SMMs be in compliance with DFARS? To be in compliance with DFARS, right now you can do that by self-reporting. If you're trying to do DOD contracts, in order to have that privilege, you have to show that you're compliant. You do that by self-reporting to the DibNet portal, D-I-B-Net. And right now, that's kind of easy. You just go through this control set, the 171, 110 controls, and you check off, yep, I've implemented that, or no, I haven't. And at the end, you have a score that says, you know, I've got, you know, 87 points out of the 110. And you report that to the DibNet portal. And once you report it, it's officially recorded then you are in compliance the way things are right now. Once UMMC comes into play 2.0, that may change and you may lose the ability to not meet all the controls. I know that these UMMC 2.0 official language is saying that there will still be a POEM process, which is the process that says you don't have to meet everything right away. You can take some time and fix it, but 
they're saying that their poem process is going to be like an exception-based thing and it has to be approved. Most people, as I understand it, when CMMC rolls around, will have to comply with all 110 controls. Okay, so it sounds like there's a progression here in terms of how the federal government is kind of ramping up the cybersecurity posture of the entire defense supply chain. And it can't happen overnight, but it's being something that's being incremented in. Is that kind of the case? I hear you saying that once CMMC 2.0 is in place, the self-reporting may change and become something a little bit more stringent. That's exactly correct. It is in flux. Even the levels of CMMC are, are going to be changing. Like they've defined level one and level two and they've announced there's going to be a level three, but that hasn't been fully fleshed out yet. Ernie, anything to add to those points? Just to kind of clarify, the 171 is the CMMC. So the CMMC is the 171 at level two, CMMC 2.0 level two. So the 171 has been mandated for years now. So when CMMC 2.0 rolls around, there is an expectation that companies will already have all the stuff done. Whether that's true or not, you know, I guess we'll see. But there is an expectation right now that everyone is in adherence with the 171 compliance with the DFAR 7012. So it should, in theory, not be a Herculean effort to meet the, the CMMC 2.0 because defense contractors, short of somebody getting new business, you know, new contract award, and they've never seen it before, they should already be in a good position to be successful with this. Okay, so if, so if I'm a small, mid-sized manufacturer, I'm that hypothetical machine shop owner I mentioned a few minutes ago. My key takeaways are that 8171 is the base standard and that the cybersecurity posture that the federal government is taking for all contractors within the defense supply chain and by extension across the entire federal government, I think, is continuously being increased. It's leveling up. And so this is something I need to pay attention to and make sure I get ahead of because there may come a point at which if you don't comply to all of this and, and be able to, to verify compliance, you don't get contracts. Is that kind of where they're going with some of these things? That's loosely a true statement. So there is a process that we call the DODAM, the De Department of Defense Assessment Methodology. And with that, you get a score and the perfect score is 110. So with that, if you do not have a score in there, and we're told right now that right now in you know early 2022, mid 2022, that it doesn't matter what your score is, you just have to have a score in what's called the SPURS, SPRS, the Supplier Risk Reporting. So if you have a score in there, then you're eligible for new business option or extension, you know, whatever that would look like. If you don't have a score, then you're not eligible for award of any kind. So that's in place right now, the the supplier has to have a score in there, even if it's you know negative 210, which you know that that's a real score. It goes to 110 positive, but you can have a negative score. And this is exactly the 171. The controls are exactly the same, but they're indexed and weighted based on the relative risk in a general context. So some of these requirements will be five points and others will be one point, and then there's two and there's uh, three also involved. So, and there's two of them that offer multiple flavors of points based on how you implement it. So, you know, FIPS validated cryptography versus non-FIPS validated cryptography 
versus no crypto, then of course, no crypto is zero. And then if you have FIPS validated crypto, then it's five. But if you have crypto, but it's not FIPS validated, then you get two. So it's fairly complicated at first. It doesn't take that long to learn it. But um, based on that, you can end up with 80% correct and still end up with a negative score if you get a bunch of the five pointers wrong. So back to the original question, you do have to have a score in Spurs that is based on the 171 in order to be awarded a contract or an option or whatever. So going forward, they will be looking at scores. If you have a 110, which is perfect, and someone else has an 80, well, that represents less risk to the Department of Defense. So it's likely that would be weighted into the contract award process. Okay, so it's not necessarily the lowest cost bidder anymore because it's not just the cost of producing, it's the cost of the stolen IP that can happen if you don't have the security protocols in place. Those are options they have to consider when they're making these. We don't know that they're making these judgments or not, but these are things they can look at. Exactly. It's speculative as far as the way we're looking at it, but I would suspect that's right. Okay, so in reading up on NIST SP-800-171, I came across the NIST cybersecurity framework. They identify, protect, detect, respond, and recover. What is it and how does it relate to 800-171? So the CSF cybersecurity framework, there are lots of frameworks within NIST. And this one, it tries to assess risk. You know, that's what it's about is assessing the risk to an organization. And the families are pigeonholed into a particular part of that process, whether it be, you know, protect, detect, respond, whatever. Certain families kind of lend themselves to that methodology. So, so families in 800 those 14 you mentioned? Yeah, they get plugged in. For instance, you know, protectors, access control and awareness and training and things like that. And, you know, they all get plugged in along the way. I think that there's still opportunity within the CSF, the cybersecurity framework, in that it does not go into the depth necessary to get a good understanding of risk per use case. And I know that's kind of a mouthful. So when we talk about use case-based risk management, the best way that I've found to do this is to bring up another NIST document. It's actually the cloud series, so the 500 series. So NIST SP500-299 Annex A. The Annex A in the 500-299 shows a lot of different use cases. There's about 450. And so that, you know, we talk about the 171, there's 110 requirements there. Well, there are 450 use cases that are independent and are not necessarily analogous to the 110 requirements in the 171. So there's a complexity there and there's a complexity with the CSF because if you take risk as a whole, then you're going to have a lot falling through the cracks. And this is just experience. I've been in the industry for about 30 years. So if you take each of those 455 things, then the first thing to do is define what it means. So when you're talking, and it's not just talking about, you know, the technical network, there's things like contracting and, you know, FCI, federal contract information, which also comes into play. And there's a lot of other things too, but the key is to go through the process there as far as a use case based risk management concept. So you take what is in the 299 and you define it. 
and you define it in general context, and then you can also further define it into what you think it means as it relates to your organization. The next step is to figure out the different exploit vectors for that. So exploit vectors can be operational in nature. They could be physical, you know, whatever that would look like, but they can also be technical avenues, logical-based attacks and things like that. So out of this 450, it can grow to easily a thousand because of these different definitions and attack vectors. And these again are just line item use cases, line item things like a laundry list. But then once you determine the definition and then the exploit vectors, plural, that someone might attack you with, someone or something, if it's, you know, bot, whatever, then you determine how to mitigate the exposure because the exploit's going to be there. You have to mitigate the exposure for, you know, what that means to you as an organization. So based on that, you can have multiple remediation. Ideally, it's fully remediation, but it could be partially mitigated at some level. And there you have to determine what makes sense for you as an organization. So you do this for the 450 to 1,500, you know, whatever you end up with is this number, and it takes a while. That's the opportunity that I see within the CSF and other frameworks is it doesn't go into this use case-based approach for the true risk mitigation. And if it doesn't, then there's so much, there's probably more that falls through the cracks than you actually capture. And I think that until that becomes the norm as far as operation, there's always going to be something that somebody can find to exploit. Okay, so there's a lot in there, and I I want to kind of take it back through so make sure I understand this more thoroughly. So we started off with the DOD assessment methodology and the score and spurs and and that piece, and then we moved into the IPDRR, the uh, Identify, Protect, Detect, Respond, and Recover, the NIST Cybersecurity Framework, the CSF, right? And you're saying that it's a way of assessing risk and that it ties into the 800-171 because all of the product families are kind of broken down and plugged into one of those five uh, letters, right? I, P, D, R, 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 identify, protect, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a way of identifying risk, but there are some other ways of doing that. And the NIST SP500-299 Annex A, I think you said? Correct has a bunch of use cases. Now, now, if I'm a small, mid-sized manufacturer, I'm probably feeling a little overwhelmed. I got 110 controls and 14 product families and a bunch of alphabet soup from the government to try to keep straight and keep forward. And then I got 450 use cases to use. I'm guessing it's actually a good thing, right? Somebody's thought through 450 things that I can bounce my organization against over time uh, and look at which ones apply to me and, and get ahead of the game. Is that really kind of the case? So let let me try to back up a little bit because you're right. This gets so complicated so quickly. The thing with the DFARS and the 171 is that is a compliance and adherence effort. You have to comply with the DFARS in order to get contracting. In order to do that, you adhere to the 171 currently. So that is a compliance effort. It is not a security effort. And again, the security is much, much harder to achieve, if ever, than compliance. Compliance is very easy compared to security. In some of my clients with CMTC, I've had literally, I walked into one of my clients, they said, count everything wrong. We just want to get this right. They literally got it done in three weeks. They went from everything wrong to everything right with the 171 in three weeks. Now that's atypical. Most of my clients, they take you know, considerably longer than that, but it is possible. Mm-hmm. So when you change the mindset from one of compliance to one of security, 
you end up with all these different use cases because you have to look at everything that goes into your organization from a security perspective. And that can be something as simple as propping the door open to, you know, let somebody carry in a heavy box. Well, that's, you know, somebody could tailgate, come right in. Now they could potentially see things. Yep. They could manipulate things. They can manipulate people. So now you're looking at everything in the organization. Just about everything in the organization will have a risk component to it. So now we're looking at the sky is the limit. And the 455 that's in the 299, the 500299 NXA, that's still a start. That's probably not everything. It's just the best place I know to get your baseline of security use cases so that you can start. And then if there's something you figure out additionally along the way, then great. Now you can at least know what it is so that you can address it. So, so you're making a distinction between compliance and security. And I think I understand what you're saying. Compliance is, do I meet the standards? And am I do, do I have the, the, the right processes in place, right? Correct. And, and so that's kind of a minimum level. But security is a different story, right? If I prop the door open because I'm going to carry in like four loads of heavy boxes from my car, there's the old uh, original, one of the early stories of, you know, one of the hacks that happened to, I think, one of the big retailers, right? So the air conditioning contractor stole a badge. Or somebody stole a badge from the air conditioning contractor, went into the server room and literally plugged in a, 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 into the Ethernet port a transmitter and then just transmitted all the information out over the cell phone, to, uh, over a cell phone signal and had everybody's, you know, usernames, passwords, PIN numbers on their debit cards, right? Yeah, that's not uncommon at all. Physical security is as much as is important, you know, having the doors locked when they're supposed to be locked and don't prop them open is as important as having a firewall and malware protection and, you know, a segmented network, et cetera, et cetera, right? I'm hearing you say that. Is that what we're saying? That is correct. And to add to that, there are all these additional use cases as well. Say you have someone come in for an interview, Back in the day, I used to do pen testing and I would carry in a wireless access point and I would find a PoE power over Ethernet that would power my little device and it was Wi-Fi. It wasn't cellular. It, you know, this was before those came to be. But I would go in for the interview. I'd say, hey, I need to go get the head or whatever. They would leave me. They wouldn't escort me. So when I'm coming out, I've already scoped the place. I see the network jack and I just plug it in. Now I've got Wi-Fi that extends to the parking lot. I can simply go to the parking lot and hack them from out there. I don't have to be in there. Wow. Usually I would blow the interview to where it looks like that I, you know, just wasn't a good candidate, but the interview was not the intent to begin with. <laughs> it was to hack the organization. Right. So, so the 450 use cases allows me to not have to think of everything myself and put, uh, come up with every possible combination. It gives you a start on 450 possible ways somebody could try to hack me. Correct. And then if you see that there's something missing, then it spurred the thought process to determine what that is. And then you can figure out the exploit vectors potentially that exist and then figure out if you have any exposure at all and then how to mitigate or ultimately ideally remediate each of those. Okay. Buzz, I'm sure you have some things to add to this. There's a lot of things said here. When you first said this question, I flash back to a Pink Floyd album <laughs> where there's a bunch of music going on and then all of a sudden it gets very quiet. Everything stops and you just hear this big heavy sigh. Because <sighs> I was like, oh, this is a heavy question. <laughs> Uh, there is so much in this one. Yeah. Uh, first, I'll say that CSF, our SMM audience may never run across this. So just saying that. And CSF is in version one, and they're in the process of making version two right now. It's out for comments. And one of the most public comments that came back to NIST 
on this was from the Defense Department that said, if you want to figure out how to make CSF better, why not make it align with RMF? Because the risk management framework, RMF, we're already required to do, and your CSF doesn't recognize the risk measurement from RMF when it's doing its thing. So there is already recognition that the two standards are not quite the same, but they are being used successfully in different ways right now. So I see the CSF being used all the time as scorecards. They look at the CSF and they say, all right, this is how you should manage your risk. And then they look at the RMF and say, this is how you should measure your risk. Right? So if you're measuring risk, RMF, you've got the steps, categorize your data, select your security controls, implement the controls. Which controls? The ones from the 171. And then assess your controls. Which ones? The ones from the 171. Right? And then monitor. Uh, authorize and monitor. And it's the same controls, the 171, uh, at least in this audience. And then the CSF, this is more like, how are you managing your risk? What are the operational aspects? And I'm seeing this kind of separation. You've got the, the, the build and measure, and then you've got the manage. CSF has been fitting largely in the manage uh, framework space, where they're talking about identify what your risks are, protect your systems, put your controls in place, which is kind of a rough alignment with implementing your controls, you know, protect your systems, but it's also processes. And then detect, respond, recover. These are very operational. So I see like the government putting out report cards to the government agencies in the CSF format. Like how, what's your score for CSF? And what's your score for identify? What's your score for protect? In terms of the relationship between the 171 171 is the security requirements that fulfill the RMF requirement to select controls. But it's also some of the ones you would use to, in the CSF, to protect and detect. I think the real big difference here is CSF management focus, RMF risk measurement focus, and there's a lot of overlap. So why would there be two? Any ideas? I know that many people in the community ask the same question to NIST. We have the RMF, why did you make the CSF? And it's an ongoing conversation and it's probably what's driving CSF 2.0 to come out with something different. They're kind of the same, but kind of not. So the cybersecurity framework, the CFF, the risk management framework, the RMF, they're kind of parallel, right? I have identify in CSF and in RMF, I have categorize. So identify, protect, detect, respond, recover. Kind of the same thing with categorize, select, implement, assess, authorize, and monitor. They're kind of the same, so it's understandable how there could be some confusion there. I can understand why it would be seen that way, but if you dive into it deeply, when you're looking at the RMF and you're selecting controls, in other words, you're saying, what security characteristics am I going to implement in this application? And then you implement them in that application in that system, that's one system. For CSF, when you're saying, I want to identify my risk and protect, detect, respond, that's an enterprise function. So that's your security operations center that's saying, okay, how am I gonna protect all of these applications behind me? Each of those applications have gone to RMF to select their own individual controls. 
But then there's the programmatic level protection, CSF, where you're trying to protect all of those individual systems, which also have their own protection mechanisms. Like if you're in CSF and you say monitor, you're thinking security operations. If you're an RMF and you say monitor, you're thinking continuous monitoring for compliance. Like are all the controls still implemented? Are they still turned on? Do they still meet the requirements? It's not checking internet traffic, for example, for attacks. Uh, okay, so it sounds like there's a more ongoing process and risk management perspective, right? I have controls in place on January 1st. I add some new equipment, I get into a new line of business in March. Have I extended those controls over that new, that new equipment, that new line of business, those new assets and new potential threat vectors, right? Yeah. That monitor step there of are we still managing risk effectively and proactively looking for additional risk points is different than monitor waiting to be attacked in the CSF. Each time you add a new system in government speak, you're creating new boundaries, system boundaries, and then you're identifying controls within that boundary. I think we're getting to the heart of the matter here that the RMF is very system-based around data in a system, and the CSF is enterprise-based. Ernie, anything to add about the CSF and RMF? Yeah, so context matters, just like Buzz just mentioned, but these are security-centric things. They are not necessarily compliance-centric things. So if I'm a small business, the first thing that I want to do is find out what I have to do in order to do what I need to do to make whatever the widget is or you know service whatever. So I look for compelling mandates there. And if I'm looking at the 171 through the DFARS or in the future CMMC, then that's compelling and I have to do it. Now we start looking at, once we get past that, we start looking, is that really the security posture that I'm going to stick with long-term? And usually the answer is no. So now I can use RMF, CSF, whatever framework, there's all kinds of frameworks out there by people other than this too. So I look at these and I figure out what makes sense for me and my organization. And that's how I proceed. I do compelling first, and then I start looking at security and what makes sense for me and what my budget will allow. And if I need to take this stuff as a multi-phase thing, like, you know, I don't have the money to do something right now, but next year I can provide for the line item. You know, it was unexpected for this year. Whatever that would look like, then I can use these multiple frameworks to figure out a security program for my own organization and, you know, see how that works. Okay, that makes sense. Compliance to 871 is a good baseline, and then from there I can use the frameworks to continuously improve my security posture. Correct, and they're not mutually exclusive. You can, you know, you can have system security that extends into OPSEC, that extends into organizational holistic security, and those shades of gray can go both directions up and down. So we talked about this before a little bit. We mentioned it, but let's talk about it explicitly. Who needs to follow the NIST SB 800 guidelines? In our current context, we're talking about largely defense contractors. So those contractors fall under the DFARS acquisition requirements, which is similar to the federal acquisition requirements that you see in civilian space, the FARS. This is the DFARS, the defense version. And DFARS does require compliance with the 252-204-7012 that Ernie mentioned. The 7012 points directly at the 800-171 and said, by the way, to be compliant with our rule, it's the 171 that you have to adhere to. So anyone that's trying to get 
defense contracts needs to adhere to that. There are other voluntary adherence things going on, especially in the commercial space, but the ones that have to comply are the ones going for DOD contracts. So an OEM gets a defense contract. Does it apply to the downstream supply chain as well? The controls of the 171, that whoever the prime is on the contract, when they get that contract, they have to flow down the same control requirements to any subs that they use if those subs are going to be storing, transmitting, and processing CUI. So how can a small or medium-sized manufacturer implement NIST SP-871? What does a successful plan look like? Typically, your example of a machine shop, these folks know their trade. Manufacturing knows manufacturing, suppliers know their products, and they don't know cybersecurity. So when they're told that they have to comply to get the contracts, they need to bring in somebody. So really the path is get some compliance-minded security expert to go through the 171 and modify your network so that it has all the capabilities and the restrictions that the 171 outlines. And then you simply have to go through one of the workbooks that NIST supplies, like the 171A, to figure out if you're meeting these things and create your score. You put that score in the SPURS website that Ernie was talking about, and now you're compliant. The better approach would be to find someone who specializes in getting your SPURS scores entered and higher and bring them in. Companies like CMTC specialize in this. Ernie, anything to add? Yeah, I guess just to add on, the 171, Again, it's a laundry list. So there's 110 things, hoops to jump through, if you will. And there are different ways that you can meet these requirements. So what I do when I'm going through these with clients is there's the baseline for each of these. And we all know those. We're trained in them. We develop them. We at CMTC, we've developed an entire process for fixing this that we've repeated hundreds of times. But we have these baseline solutions, and those are based on what the thing is. So we follow a similar methodology to what we were talking about with the 500-299. We define it. You know, we've got a definition staring us in the face, but then what does that mean exactly? And then what are the different vectors of exploit? And then how do we either mitigate or remediate those? And then at the end of the day, once that's complete, we have that requirement implemented based on our solution. And we do that 110 times. So the workflow for success is essentially that, you know, there's some uh, deviation, but one of the things we look at is what is the most critical path at the least cost for the manufacturer, for our client to get this fixed without spending excess money, whether that be with resource time or with product offerings or, you know, whatever that would look like. So sometimes we will vary from the baseline solution because whatever the manufacturer, whatever the client has going on doesn't support that as most critical path at least cost. So it takes somebody like Buzz was saying, an expert in solutioning along with understanding what these things are 
in order to figure out what that, we call it MCP at LC, most critical path at least cost, what that means for that particular line item for that particular client. And that granularity, um, you know, going down to um, first principles thinking, that's how you solve security. You know, you start with compliance because you have to do that. And then that's how you solve the real question of security. First principles thinking, going to the use case, going to what that definition is, trying to figure out what the exploit is and what the exposure vectors are, and then addressing each of those. And that will perk up into a really sound security program for whatever the organization is. So it sounds like there's a lot of tailoring that's necessary because every organization is different. Everyone has different equipment, different situations, different place in the supply chain, different uh, structure, et cetera. Exactly. So what happens is the baseline solution will fix it. You know, we, we know that it'll fix it in nearly every case. That's why it becomes our baseline. But the client, the SMM, they're trying to be competitive in the marketplace. And so they don't want to waste money. So we, we assess it. We don't necessarily change it, but we assess it as at the most critical path at least cost for them. And we do that for each of the 110. And some of these things are not systems-based, not technologically based. So we look at what the thing is. For instance, incident reporting, if you have a potential compromised confidentiality of CUI, that's not a technical thing. That's an OPSEC thing. It's operational in nature. So it would demand an operational remediation. You're not going to fix this with a GPO through Windows, group policy object with Windows. It doesn't work that way. So you look at the type of the requirement and then you implement a similar type of control and that usually is the most critical path at least cost. It could be that you would have something that the problem manifests in operations in an OPSEC but if you have an operational control, that may not be exactly the best fit. Sometimes you'll use a management control for an operational or a technical requirement. Something that comes to mind is don't post CUI on publicly accessible information systems. So you can block Facebook, Google, Twitter, whatever. You can block all of those. But then somebody's going to find the new one that came out last week and you know they can post it to that. So if you put a policy at the top level, so there's three types of controls. There's management, which is policy. There's operations, which is procedure. So operational, and that's a human-based procedure. And then there's a technical solution, what I call a tech standard that'll be at the lowest level. So in this case, the thing is don't post on a publicly uh, accessible system. So the best fix for that is to create a policy at that top level saying thou shalt not under penalty of termination and you know potential prosecution, whatever that verbiage would look like. So by using that management control, it covers all of the grays. So if you know some new thing comes up the next week, it covers that too. And so you don't have to go in and you know just filter rules and stuff like that. So there is a complexity to it. And realize that with the 171, only about 40% of that manifests in technology. The OPSEC and management is about 60%. So you've got to cover that too. Because remember, CUI can live in paper form. Well, if it's stored in a file cabinet, you know, what system is that? It's an operational system. So you have to handle that too. So we've covered an awful lot of information today. Ernie, Buzz, it was great to have you here. Thank you so much for joining me and for sharing your perspectives, insights, and expertise with me and with our listeners. 
Thanks, Greg. Really appreciate being here. Thanks. And to our listeners, thank you for joining me for this conversation with Ernie Edmonds and Buzz Thomas in discussing the NIST SP800-171 cybersecurity standards. Have a great day. Stay safe and healthy. Thank you for listening to Shifting Gears, a podcast from CMTC. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with others and post it on your social media platforms. You can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your preferred podcast directory. For more information on our topic, please visit www.cmtc.com slash shifting gears. CMTC is a private nonprofit organization that provides technical assistance, workforce development, and consulting services to small and medium-sized manufacturers throughout the state of California. CMTC's mission is to serve as a trusted advisor, providing solutions that increase the productivity and competitiveness of California's manufacturers. CMTC operates under a cooperative agreement for the state of California with the Hollings Manufacturing Extension Partnership Program, MEP, at the National Institutes of Standards and Technology within the Department of Commerce. For more information about CMTC, please visit www.cmtc.com. For more information about the MEP National Network or to find your local MEP center, visit www.nist.gov forward slash MEP.